welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Before the creation of the world, He chose us through Christ to be holy and perfect in His presence. Because of His love, He had already decided to adopt us through Jesus Christ. He freely chose to do this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, God's Word Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We want to thank you for joining us as we continue our series we began a few weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We've entitled this series, Why Am I Here? We wanted to do this series because there is so much turmoil and confusion in the world around us right now, it can be easy to get lost in it. This situation calls to mind the observation that it's often made that while Christians live in this world, this world is not truly our home. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 16, the writer goes through a description of the longings of some Old Testament saints for their true home in heaven. In verse 13, he says that these saints were, quote, living as strangers with no permanent home on earth, unquote. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., how does the fact that our true home is not on this earth affect our understanding of why we are here? Well, before I comment on that, I would also like to add my thanks to yours, to all the listeners who are tuning in today, whether they're listening on the broadcast or the podcast. We're just very grateful for anyone who devotes a part of their day or their week with us. Now, the observation that this earth is not our real home that gives us context for why we are on this earth. The statement in verse 13 that you quoted might seem to be a sad statement, but in the verse 16 that follows, the writer of the Hebrews says this, That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. End quote. So, in those three short verses, the writer of Hebrews has given us a lot of insight into a true answer to the question of why we are here. First, the writer tells us that our permanent home for Christians, for people who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, is not on this earth. And that is a foundational fact that is noted throughout the Bible. But it's not until the final two chapters of the Bible that we find out what our permanent home really is. You're thinking of Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, quote, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and earth had disappeared. Then I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, God lives with humans. God will make his home with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, unquote. Right. 
The permanent home for everyone who places their trust in Jesus is the city of New Jerusalem that's located in the new heavens and the new earth. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 13 through 16, well they hearken back to Exodus chapter 2 verse 22. The New Living Translation version of that verse says, Later, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Right. I actually like the way the King James Version phrases that particular verse. The King James Version says, Gershom, which was the name of Moses' son, means stranger in a strange land. Now, many people will recognize that Stranger in a Strange Land is the same title of one of the most famous science fiction novels of all time. Now, Moses was talking primarily about the fact that at the time his first son was born, Moses was living in a land that was foreign, that was strange to him. You know, Moses had been brought up in Pharaoh's palace in Egypt, but he had to flee Egypt after he had killed an Egyptian. Well, Moses' flight led him to Midian, where he married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, who was a shepherd. So Moses would live in what some people have termed the backside of the desert for the next 40 years. So Moses truly felt as if he was a stranger in a strange land. So when Moses named his son, he was still relatively new to his surroundings. We know from the name he gave his son that he still felt the unfamiliarity of the place where he found himself. So in a very real way, Moses was expressing the earthly sentiment that the writer of Hebrews would later apply in a larger, more spiritual sense. While in Midian, Moses felt that he was a stranger in a strange land. Yes. As you have said, in a very real way, that expresses a sense that all Christians have experienced in one form or another, that we too are strangers in a strange land. Uh, Some of the old-timers used to say, we're just passing through. And that's something we have to keep in mind as we ponder the question of why we are here. The question why we are here essentially has at least three dimensions for a Christian. First, we ask it sometimes because we want to be sure that our lives have purpose and meaning. Second, we may meditate on that question because we're wondering, frankly, whether anyone really cares about the struggles we are facing, and frankly, whether anybody really loves us. And third, Christians will wonder about why we are here, because we want to be sure that we are fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. Christians can wonder about whether we are fulfilling God's purpose for our lives, because Christians obviously believe in a loving Creator God who chose us before the creation of the world. We heard that in our opening scripture from Ephesians. But if there is someone who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, they are denied that insight. Yes. And as we noted in our last episode in this series, anyone who subscribes to the notion that their existence on this earth results strictly from, quote, evolution, from the random chaotic collision of bits of matter that are tossed around in undirected vortices of energy, That kind of a person has no firm basis for trying to derive a meaning for their life. Randomness, turmoil, chaos, those are the exact opposite of purpose and meaning. So if you ascribe the origin of life, all life, including yours, to random, turmoil, chaos, 
then you have denied yourself the opportunity to find significance for your own existence. But since all human beings have an intuitive knowledge that there is a God, anyone who believes God's existence is in an untenable, unstable position when it comes to forming a worldview. They can't trace their existence back to a purposeful creator, so they have no ultimate source for the existence of any purpose at all in the universe. So, when it comes to finding meaning for their lives, they are standing on intellectual quicksand. This is one of the points that the Apostle Paul was making in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. All that is left for that kind of a worldview is a profound sort of abiding hopelessness. In their worldview, they could just as well have not existed as existed. Their existence is just one more cosmic accident because cosmic accidents are all that is possible in an uncreated, undirected universe. It's little wonder that a starting axiom that denies God's existence produces feelings of a lack of worth, unimportance, and purposelessness in people who hold it. Yes. The person who denies God's existence begins the contemplation of why they are here in a double deficit. First, they have no ultimate source of purpose in the universe at all. And second, that kind of person is constantly going to feel the struggle of having to suppress their intuitive knowledge of God. The Greek word that is translated as suppress in that chapter of Romans is the same word that would have been used for trying to hold back a great weight or compress a strong spring. It takes effort to suppress the knowledge of God. Now, of course, the situation is different for the Christian. Christians know that there is a God and that he purposefully created us. But Christians also know that the creation in which we live is a fallen creation. This creation does not exist in the same state in which God originally created it. The Bible tells us that creation itself was affected when Adam and Eve sinned, and that even now it's not the way God originally intended. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says, quote, We know that all creation is still groaning and is still in pain, like a woman about to give birth, unquote. And that's from the contemporary English version. Right. The Christian lives life with the constant awareness that things in this universe are not right, but they also live with the awareness, as we started out saying, that we're just passing through. So, for a Christian to answer the question, why we are here, that has an inextricable link to what we should be doing while we are just passing through. And in our last couple of episodes, we noted that what we are about to be while we are passing through can be thought about in three different categories, our character, our career, and our calling. We are on this earth for a matter of decades. A few of us may live beyond a hundred, but we will be in our permanent home, in the new heavens and the new earth, for eternity. And the only thing we will take from this earth to our heavenly home is our character and our record of any deeds we have done for Christ. One of the big reasons we are on this earth is to develop that character we will possess for an eternity. Sometimes, I really hate thinking about that. And any sober Christian does. We have all fallen short of God's best for our lives, and that's why we celebrate God's grace. God's grace gives us what we could never achieve for ourselves, 
That means that we can begin wherever we are right at this moment to begin seeking to improve our characters in the manner in which God calls us. Which is to be holy. We have noted in previous episodes in this series on Anchored by Truth that while the Bible may not be precise about what career we should follow or what our calling for the kingdom is, the Bible is crystal clear. Crystal clear, as in a crystal sea. Nice plug. (laughs) Anyway, the Bible is crystal clear that we are called to be holy even as God is holy. Most people think of the term holy as meaning sacred or pure. And that's fine. But the primary meaning of holiness is to be set aside. Holy things and holy people are set aside for God's use. To be holy is to mean that our lives are set aside from the world and dedicated to God. Yes. So when it comes to knowing why we are here, at least insofar as our character is concerned, the reason that we are here is to learn to become holy. And we spent the better part of our last two episodes of Anchored by Truth talking about what the Bible has to say about why we are here insofar as it concerns our careers and our callings. And we noted that when it comes to careers, we made the point that carefully reading the Bible reveals that God uses people from a wide variety of jobs and vocations in His service. Sometimes people might get the idea that you must become a preacher, a missionary, a church worker to be in a vocation that is pleasing to God. But that isn't true. And we mentioned the verse from Exodus where God called two specific Israelite men to make the furniture and fixtures for the temple, demonstrating God's approval of craftsmen, artisan, and people who work with their hands. Right. And when it came to discussing our calling, we pointed out that our callings for the kingdom may be directly related to our careers and jobs, but our callings don't have to be. Robert Latorno's name is well known in the construction field because even though he dropped out of school in the seventh grade, he held over 300 patents in the field of earth moving. Latorno's sister challenged him at a very early age to get serious about serving God. Well, initially, Latorno thought that meant he should be a preacher or a missionary. But after praying with his pastor about his calling in life, the pastor told Latorno, well, God needs businessmen too. So Latorno became what he called God's business partner. Latorno was a very successful business partner for God, eventually giving 90% of what he earned to charitable projects all over the world. He once said, quote, I shovel money out and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel, unquote. Latorno is just one example of someone who fulfilled a calling to serve God through amazing giving, even though his career was designing and building earth-moving equipment. And for anyone who missed those episodes of Anchored by Truth, links to those shows are available on our website at crystalseabooks.com or at your favorite podcast app. So as we're coming to the end of this Why Am I Here series, what do you want to emphasize as we begin our wrap-up? Well, what we have seen throughout this series is that in order to know why we are here, we must understand that we live in a universe created by God, and that creation fell when Adam and Eve sinned. And ever since the fall, God has been engaged in a plan of redemption. The climax of that plan of redemption was when Jesus came to earth, and Jesus adopted a human nature in addition to the divine nature that he has always possessed, And Jesus then proceeded to pay the price for our sin. Jesus paid the sin debt that we all owe to God. 
So we who live today, we live in that time between Jesus' first coming as the suffering servant and Jesus' prophesied second coming when he's going to be coming as a conquering lion. When Jesus comes as the conquering lion, that is going to usher in the end of this phase of human history. Then everyone who has placed their trust in Jesus for salvation, we're all going to enter our permanent home. And our permanent home will be in the New Jerusalem, and the New Jerusalem will be set in a new heavens and a new earth. So as we think about why we are here, we have to keep all that in mind. And we can't do that without knowing the Bible. That's one point we have emphasized throughout the series. We must be familiar with the Bible to understand God, God's will for us, how God has interacted with his people in the past, and God's plan for the future. This information is crucial if we truly want to know how we fit into God's creation. And it is God's creation, despite what our modern culture might like to insist. And that's frankly one of the reasons that surveys about people's attitudes today reveal so much hopelessness and dissatisfaction. People don't want to base their lives on the reality that we bear God's image. If we reject God, we reject the basis for our own existence, purpose, and meaning. Yes. So one of the really big points that I want to get across as we close this series is that we have to come to grips with the fact that the reason that we are here has to account for God's purpose for creating people in the first place. As we mentioned in our very first episode in this series, one of the old creedal statements that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, I fully realize that it is not a popular sentiment today to say that the purpose of man is to glorify God, but that does not mean that the statement is less true or less meaningful. We are never going to have an answer to the question of why we are here unless we recognize that we are here to glorify God and that we're all going to do that one way or another. Well, I think you're right that most people today do not have much, if any, interest in glorifying God. It's sad to say, but most people are more interested in glorifying themselves. But as the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, quote, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, unquote. So if our principal aim is to glorify ourselves, then we will not be seeking to glorify God. Conversely, if we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, we cannot help wanting to proclaim His excellence. It's a stark contrast. Why do you think people today resist glorifying God? I think people today misunderstand the idea of glorifying God. And that's both sad and curious. Because in this world today, a great many people have no problem whatsoever glorifying far less noble entities than God. People today will quite often be willing to glorify sports figures, entertainment celebrities, political candidates, and any number of earthly organizations or locations. And go walk around any town or city in the Western culture, and you're going to see someone wearing a sports jersey for a particular college or a particular town or a particular team. And you're going to see those sports jerseys being worn that have to do with a very wide variety of sports. And quite often, the sports jerseys that are being worn, well, they're going to come from particular people on the team that that individual is celebrating. The jersey may have the name of a quarterback or a pitcher or a goaltender. 
People who are willing to wear the jersey of a sports team, or even more, the jersey of a sports individual, not only want to identify with that organization, but they're also identifying with a particular person. I see what you mean. Kids will leave their house adorned with images of cartoon or animated movie characters. They will have princess this or hero that on their clothes, their shoes, their backpacks. Teenagers will buy sunglasses, sports gear, or cosmetics because they have seen a celebrity wearing or using the item, or because an internet influencer included it in a video or a selfie. And adults will identify themselves as a fan of a particular city's team, or even sometimes some well-known food item or style of cuisine. Yes. People have no problem identifying with and therefore glorifying all kinds of famous people, places, or things. In other words, people don't resist attributing glory to a great many earthly things, but they will balk when it comes to doing that same thing with the one who made the earth, with the Lord of the universe. Now, make no mistake, if you buy and wear a jersey from your favorite sports figure, you are certainly giving that figure glory because you are telling the world that you are so impressed with that person that you want to identify with that person. And you want the world to know that you identify with that person, with that team. But I'm sure that a lot of people would say they are not trying to glorify that sports figure. They're just displaying their loyalty to them. Then the question is, why do they feel loyal to that team or person? And the answer is going to have something to do with that person having been born or living in the city that they do. Or they're going to be impressed with something that the team or that sports figure did. And they're going to also say that their loyalty exists, at least in some measure, to let the world know that they are impressed. That they do want people to recognize the thing that they're recognizing. And you know, all that's fine. I'm not trying to get people to not buy team jerseys or be less proud of where they're from. But what I am pointing out is that if we are so willing to be so open about our loyalty or our dedication to lesser earthly entities, why would we feel any reluctance to simply do the same thing with God? So you're saying that if we don't mind glorifying things on the earth, why would we resist glorifying the one who made the earth? Exactly. Theologians will speak of two types of glory that are associated with God. God possesses what's termed intrinsic glory, but there is also something called ascribed glory. Now, intrinsic glory, that's the glory that God possesses just because of who he is. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the perfect. God is the ultimate. God is the one without shadow. Which is the name you used for God in your book, The Prodigal's Advocate. Yes, because God has no imperfections or flaws that would create a shadow. And as one of my friends pointed out after he read The Prodigal's Advocate, he said, well, God is the one without shadow because the source of the light would never have a shadow. God's intrinsic glory cannot be increased and it cannot be decreased by anyone or anything. God is ultimate and perfect in everything. God possesses ultimate perfection and ultimate majesty. Human words fail you when you're trying to describe God's ultimate perfection. That's about the best we can do. Intrinsic glory is the glory that God possesses just because of who he is. He is God. But ascribed glory, that's the glory that God receives from his creatures. 
And those creatures can either render the glory to God that he is due, they do that if that person is wise, or the people cannot render the glory to God, and if the people are unwilling to render glory to God, well, then they are frankly foolish. Because it's foolish to try to withhold acknowledging that that which another already possesses. Exactly. So to put it plainly, one reason that we are here is to learn that God is entirely worthy of receiving glory and also to learn how to properly express the glory that God deserves. But what so many people don't realize is that if they attempt to withhold the expression of glory to God, the only person that they are denying is themselves. We identify with sports figures, teams, cities, etc., whatever, because it helps us feel like we belong, like we are connected. And that's understandable. That's perfectly reasonable. But if it is true that we identify and give glory to sports figures, teams, and cities, it should be far truer that we want to do that with heavenly things. When we seek to glorify God, we will feel and we will actually be far more connected to God. We've mentioned many times during this series that the human beings bear God's image. But the image that we bear is a marred one. Our ability to reflect God is marred by sin. But, as Sinclair Ferguson has said, quote, God wants his image back, unquote. And I think all Christians feel that innately. Even non-Christians feel the weight of God's presence in their lives. Romans chapter 1 makes that very clear. Right. So let's be even more pointed about the fact that glorifying God is not only our purpose in life, it's the central part of why we are here. It is essential. You know, I often hear people say that they want to feel God's power in their lives, or they want victory in their faith, or they want to know God's will for their lives. I I hear a lot of people say those things either in person or on the radio. That's essentially all the same sentiment that's just being expressed in different ways. Well, anyone who truly wants to experience God's power has to begin by glorifying God. If we want victory or power or spiritual authority, we're only going to get it if we consciously set out to glorify God. As you wrote in The Prodigal's Advocate, when a mighty king prepares a great banquet, and the easiest way for the king to show his servants the banquet was successful is to invite them to taste the feast for themselves. So if we genuinely desire God to be glorified, the best way for God to show us that our desire is fulfilled is for God to bring us close to Him. Our desire for God's glory animates God's heart to pull us to Him. And clearly, the closer we are to God, the more of His power and victory we will experience. As Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, quote, The joy of the Lord is our strength. Unquote. Exactly right. When we glorify God in prayer or by reading the Bible, God invites us to come into His very throne room. Glorifying God is the very essence of why we are here. And the more we seek to glorify God, the more clearly God is going to give us answers to the question of why we are here. And the best way for us to get a truly satisfying answer to the question of why we are here is to set our hearts on glorifying God. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since Mother's Day is approaching, Let's listen to a prayer for our mothers. A prayer for mothers. Father of beauty and grace, your care and affection for your children never grows old or weary, 
and no matter how trying our struggles, we can always come home to you. Lord, I thank you that you have given me a loving family and a wonderful mother. Loving families provide us an immediate and tangible experience of the love that you have for us. I pray that you would bless and protect my mother, hold her close to you, and provide for all her needs. I pray for health and strength for her. I pray that you would surround her with friends and companions. I know that she loves being with family, and I pray that ours will always be a close one. But I also know that there are times when she needs to be with good friends who can provide her with the companionship that comes from a set of truly devoted friends. I pray that she would be a blessing to them and they to her. I pray that you would provide for her financial and material needs, especially during uncertain times. Let us be able to help her as she needs our support and help us always to be attentive to the unspoken needs. Help me to know how to bring joy into her life. Help me to slow down when necessary, to be with her and talk to her, reminding me that someday I will hope that others will do the same for me. Bless my mother by drawing her ever closer to you. In Christ's name, I pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.